do stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look together at Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning. And as we look at Habakkuk chapter 3, let us know that we're hearing from God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth and looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Salah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits, fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace. And to the hearers, please be seated. You are what you eat, they say. When you eat fatty foods, you get unhealthy. You are what you worship. More specifically, you are what you pray. You are what you sing. We are what we sing. If we sing fat and fluffy songs, our faith gets fat and fluffy. What we sing is often how we think about God. So what do you think about God? Is it grounded in God's Word? What songs do you eat? Is it nourishing for your soul? Or is it fat and fluffy? We've been learning the language of lament as a church. 
Habakkuk complained about the immoral idolatry of the people, that he was called to serve as a priestly prophetic figure. God answered Habakkuk's complaint in Habakkuk chapter 1, effectively saying, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what I'm about to do. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to conquer Israel. The evil Babylonians will be used to discipline my wayward people, Israel. Then after 70 years, Israel will return because Babylon's going to fall to Persia. And later on, though he doesn't say it in Habakkuk chapter 1, Persia would fall to the Greeks just as the Assyrians fell to Babylon in the cycle of nations seeking revenge and power only to get drunk on that power and then get toppled, continued and continues to this day. God claims to, in a, in a judo kind of move, use the strength of the nations aggressing against themselves for a fuller providential purpose in the end. Needless to say, this type of fix that God says he's going to do for the ills that Habakkuk the prophet sees, this type of fix was not immediately received well by Habakkuk. He did not like this kind of fix. We see something of Habakkuk's protest about how relatively righteous Israel is compared to Babylon in chapter 1, verse 12. But the high watermark comes in chapter 2 when God says, The righteous of the Lord shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Not by fear alone, but by faith. Chapter 2, verse 4. And that one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. There are many Babylons. They will be finally toppled. This is talked about in Revelation chapter 19. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, has fallen. Babylon becomes synonymous with any nation that gets drunk on power and whose people are worshipers of themselves instead of the one true God. The woes of chapter 2, there's five of them in verse 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19. Those woes are as applicable for other nations as they are for Babylon originally. But that doesn't fit the tension that we live with by faith. Because zoomed out, we see Babylon will face the righteous wrath of God. But zoomed in, we see the carnage of everyday life. In fact, we need to find weekly language in our corporate worship assemblies when we gather together like this, what we call church. We need to find language that deals with the zoomed inness of the carnage of everyday life. That's exactly what Habakkuk or Habakkuk finds perspective for in chapter 3. You see, Habakkuk's circumstances does not change from chapter 1 to chapter 3. The Babylonians would, in fact, invade Israel three times, and the third time in 586 B.C. conquer it to the uttermost. They'd lay siege to it for two years, and it was ugly, an ugly scene. We read about it in Lamentations last month. So the circumstances... 25 years prior to that, the circumstances of immorality that led to God's righteously allowing His people to be chastised by a foreign nation, those circumstances did not change. But between Habakkuk chapter 1 and Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk's attitude changes. And that's what we want to mark as we examine chapter 3 today. Habakkuk prays and preaches and sings the word, all of it. Verse 1, Shigianoth is a musical term. And verse 19 is poetic language as the poem is addressed to the choir master, which means it's meant to be sung as a song in corporate worship with stringed instruments of their day. So cue up the guitar and the piano and sing songs that 
request certain things of God and remember certain things of God and rejoice in the things of God. And, and I believe if you do that today, that you'll, answer, you'll find answers for questions like how you're wholly discontent with the Israel around you, how you can handle it better, manage it better, minister in it. You can answer questions like, how can my circumstances not dictate my mood for my life? How many of us need help with that? Too often circumstances dictate my mood. Or maybe a little bit more topical question, how can you know, how can we know we're doing the right things on Sunday morning? How can we know the elements of our prayers and our songs and our sermons and our counsel with one another? How, how can we know that we're on the right track? This text speaks to those things, our corporate prayers and our songs. This sermon will share about that. May the Lord give us ears to hear now. So three points. Our worship needs to pray and sing about requests, about remembering, and about rejoicing. Request, remember, and rejoicing. Request will be verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 15 will be remember. And then verses 16 through 19 will be rejoicing. First, we need to worship with request. Worship with request. Refresh on verses 1 and 2 with me. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. It says, I've heard how you work. Examine that. I fear you. Would you revive it again? In fact, it's an imperative. Revive. Make. These are imperatives. He's speaking to the Lord with assertion. Kind of like the song we sang a while ago, Revive Us Again. He's asking, but he's also asserting, you've done it, do it. Move in power among your people. We need you. You mighty God, we need you. Habakkuk helps us see our need for revival, our need for depth. We need depth of doctrine, not shallow trivialities. We will not reach the world with shallow platitudes that echo the world's low view of the majesty of God. We won't even encourage one another with shallow platitudes that look at God as small. God is big. We proclaim His majesty, His depth. And God's people hear it. And God's people respond because God's people know the sound of the shepherd's voice. There is no more of Habakkuk saying, we're no more righteous than them by chapter 3. Our righteousness is higher relative to the Babylonians, perhaps. But we're not to be compared with the world. We're to be compared with what this book says we're supposed to be. No more relative righteousness for us. We look out here at the world and say, you know what, I'm, I'm slightly less immoral than those people, and I'm slightly less distracted than those people. I'm, no, 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 no. We're not to compare ourselves with the world. Holiness is compared with God. And God makes us like Him in this process that we call sanctification. So, we should stop comparing ourselves relatively as righteous and realize that we have an audience of one that we are striving to please. And ultimately, of course, only finding him pleased through the perfect life of his son. I'm not preaching works-based righteousness, but I am preaching works in your sanctification. Your salvation should drive you to live a life that is chastened before God. God helps Habakkuk realize that every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is no relative righteousness. And so there is a need to request of God, revive us again. Habakkuk, I think, understood what the New Testament describes 
as the gospel in the sense of everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of what we deserve for our sin is eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is that spiritual death. We're dead people walking without Christ, without salvation. And every man stands in need of the same free gift of salvation. If he is to stand before the Lord on the last day, it will be because the Lord himself intercedes for him or intercedes for you and says, he's one of mine, she's one of mine. I know him, I know her, come into the Father's glory. It will not be because of your relative righteousness that you enter through the pearly gates and stand before the Father and don't fall. It'll be because Jesus is there to catch you. Our Lord is your only hope. He's your only hope in all of your life and certainly in death. There is nothing else that will save you and save you to the uttermost. This gets ultimate and it's about salvation and the free gift of God. It is not about trivialities and our relative righteousness. Jonah didn't want to preach that message to the Ninevites. He finally did, reluctantly. We don't want to hear that message for ourselves today. We want to believe there is something that we can do ourselves to acquiesce the white-hot wrath of God. But we can't. The only thing that can be done is a response to the one that did it, Jesus Christ. And when you respond to the one that did it, what that looks like is worship. It doesn't look like trivialities and trying to do it yourself. It looks like worship. If you can't get yourself to heaven through your works, then you have nothing left but Christ. And so he then, therefore, the natural response to that is what? Wow, thank you. I mean, me? You save me? I'm not going to spend eternity apart from you because you save me? That's worship. And that's what we do in our homes with our families. We worship together at the dinner table before we pray, before we eat, we pray. We worship the God of creation. We say, thank you for saving me, for redeeming me. I didn't deserve it. I cannot, sometimes I can't believe it. I have to pinch myself and read the word and be reminded, wow, the wages of sin is, is eternal separation from you, but your gift for me, it's amazing. The difference between before you're converted and after has similarities with the difference between Habakkuk's approach in Habakkuk 1 and his approach in Habakkuk 3. In Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk is complaining to God and in some ways indicting God for not fixing all the problems out there around him. And by Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk has solidarity with the people that he's supposed to minister to and he's praying we prayers. Would you please help us? Would you revive us? Would you renew us and restore us? Would you do a thing in our day, in a time where we know now we deserve wrath, would you remember mercy? He is praying and petitioning God, and God doesn't seem to be off-put by it. I mean, it's extant in our word here, isn't it? These 19 verses of Habakkuk 3. God doesn't seem to be off-put by the fact that Habakkuk is beckoning upon him to do something for his people. I like the way that Habakkuk 3.2 reads in the New International Version. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In the English Standard Version, the Bible that we, version that we preach from here and we've been reading this morning, it ends with those same four words. In wrath, remember mercy. There's no sense here where Habakkuk is whitewashing the anger of God. He's not pressing that aside. He hasn't come up with some clever answer for justifying God being mad at humanity. He has accepted the fact that our relative righteousness is righteous none. 
and he still believes in a God that saves, and he is crying out to God for his mercy. There, that is instructive for our posture of prayer. It's instructive. We worship with request. We petition God. We need to sing and pray that God would revive us again and again and again. Habakkuk is referred to as the Job of the prophets. Michael Card writes in his book, Sacred Sorrows, Habakkuk wrestles with the same issue as Job, the conflict between retributive justice and mercy, between justice and mercy. Habakkuk can live with his fears because God is faithful to judge. That's how he reasons at the end of the book. Habakkuk can live with his fears in his circumstances presently because God is faithful to judge. This book doesn't resemble the other prophets in that it contains a dialogue between heaven and earth, in that it contains Habakkuk talking to God and God responding. It's a magnificent book in that way. It is unusual. God offers us answers in this book. Grace comes by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And Habakkuk learns that wrath is deserved, and yet he prays for mercy in the same phrase. In wrath, remember, mercy. Once Habakkuk learns that wrath is deserved, he knows how then to pray, God, I need mercy. I need mercy. These prophets kept their grip by not letting go of God through the painful means of honest lament. They kept crying out in faith even when their faith seemed meager and when they seemed weak. Habakkuk concludes with a kind of psalm. It kind of sounds like Psalm 7 here. He echoes King David's formulas of remembrance in the verses we're about to read, as well as the sense of Job's words concerning the awesomeness of God over creation we're going to see in chapter 3 as we relook at it. But don't lose this tension between the justice of God and the mercy of God. They're both there. Wrath, mercy. Wrath, mercy. And they're there for us to embrace and pray for, even if we cannot tidy it up with a nice little bow and answer exactly how it is that God is right in all of this. God is not on trial here. God is not on trial. He is to be revered in worship. He is mighty. And that's what really takes us into our second point. We need to worship not only with requests, but also with remembrance. There is something special about remembering, about reflecting. I think about my own family. Some of the most precious times in my own family is when we have this kind of margin in our lives and we have an, allow enough time to have conversations about things that have happened in the past, things that have happened that have been enjoyable, things that have happened at times that have been difficult, but just to reflect. Do you know what I mean? It might happen over Thanksgiving or when you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle or where you're traveling somewhere, but it's when you just look back and you think, you remember when? You remember when? You remember when? God kind of wants us to do that. He wants us to look back as we gather together to worship, as you worship in your homes. He wants you to look back and remember when God did that? You remember when God did this? You remember when God acted on behalf of his people in that way? Do you remember? Do you remember? And I want you to have that lens as we read these verses again, verses 3 through 15. And I also want to say this. This is thought to be also an appearing of God as well as a reflection or a remembering of what God's done. It's kind of mishmashed together. I think that's instructive too. We learn how to be hopeful in what God will do by remembering what he has done. Listen to how Habakkuk mishmashes 
the Bible's theology into these verses. Verse 3, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in, its, in their place. Seems like he's looking back at Joshua 10, the sun stood still. At the light of your arrows as they sped, and the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, not shying away from the anger and the righteous wrath of God. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, verse 13, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of wicked, of the wicked. It seems clear that he's talking about crushing the heads of state in the due time, but I think also there's a gospel promise somewhere embedded in the crushing the head of the wicked. That seems to be something as old as Genesis. One day, the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of that crafty serpent, Satan. That seems as if a great gospel promise is embedded in language like that, too. It says, verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Well, God is deeply concerned with justice, isn't he? Verse 15, you trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And I think it's a good place uh, to stop. One commentator describes these verses as a vision of God's appearing, or what theologians call a theophany, God appearance. And he's appearing to deliver salvation based largely on remembering his work in the past. For example, God comes like a storm beneath the Dead Sea from the wilderness in Sinai. He comes up like a storm all of a sudden. Right? We know this from the New Testament. When the Lord returns, it's going to come on us like a storm, like a thief in the night. There'll be no prepping at that point. You must prepare now. Don't put off till tomorrow what you do today with salvation by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. No guarantee of tomorrow. Life can be snuffed out just like that. God comes like a storm from beneath the Dead Sea. From the wilderness in Sinai, like the Exodus, God's power becomes unveiled. He, he, it's veiled. It seems like it's not there, and then all of a sudden it appears. The faith, the people of faith know it's there all along, and we're not surprised when it shows up. We're just amazed by it. Frightening for the unbelievers is it when God's power is unveiled. He stands and He shakes the nations. Terrain doesn't stop Him. Those like Cush who afflicted Israel now... They're envisioned as afflicted. Those in Midian, southeast of the Dead Sea, were defeated by Gideon's small group. You can read about it in Judges 6-8. through The parting of the waters, it's mentioned in Habakkuk 3-9. The parting of the waters happened in Israel's history during their exodus from Egypt. You might recall they were enslaved by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. And it seemed after hundreds of years that they would be stymied yet again after the fits and starts that Moses went through as well as their divinely appointed leader. But finally it happened. It, the veil was lifted. The parting of the waters happened, and it happened in Israel's. They marched across the Red Sea. The created order 
still obeys God. Your power extends, O Lord, to the forest expanses of existence, the forest expanses of existence. The sun and the moon stand still at your command, Joshua 10. The nations are threshed by you in righteous anger. You get the, you get the theme here? God is not small. He's not minimal. It's not like my otherwise good life and let's add him on. It completely reframes the way you look at the world. It evidently has to because God's not like us. It reframes it. One commentator says it this way. He says, Habakkuk begins his complaint to God in Habakkuk 1, man-centered. And by Habakkuk 3, he moves from being man-centered in how he communicates to being God-centered. That's a fundamental shift in the attitude of Habakkuk. Remember, nothing has changed. There's no widespread repentance among the Israelites. They get crushed righteously by God. They don't repent, but Habakkuk repents. He repents necessarily of his attitude. You can tell it by the way he talks in chapter 3. Just compare the tone. It'd be a good exercise for you this afternoon or this week. Read Habakkuk 1, then read Habakkuk 3, and look at who changed. Habakkuk's attitude has changed. You need to be able to rise above your circumstances. Your faith demands that you rise above your circumstances. Well, how will you do it? Corporate worship is a big part of how you do it. How many of you can testify, if you'd be honest this morning, of a time when you got away from the corporate worship of God's people, where you weren't engaging with God's people in singing faithful songs and praying faithful prayers? And can you testify to the, dry, the slow dryness of your soul? It just sort of withers. I see a few people nodding and raising hands. Yes. We know this. Listen, you're not alone. Come to the fount. The Lord intends to feed His people through the corporate prayers and songs. He intends for us to be nourished that way. He intends for us to preach the Word and pray the Word and sing the Word. This is one of the reasons that we have more people involved up here this morning. I told you this summer we're praying for God, for men to call, for God to call men to study the Word, to be able to stand up here and lead us in a prayer about God's Word. You know, you saw Brad this morning do that. You saw Ron do that this morning. You're going to hear Jonas do that before he concludes the service. Why? Because we, I'd like, would that every single man in this room would have a longing to lead God's people in prayer. You, you don't have to be some verbal rock star to do that. Have a heart to read a passage of Scripture to meditate on it and to be able to pray in, in your family, to be able to pray before God's people, to be able to pray in a Bible study, like a small group Bible study, like Sunday school. Every single one of us, listen to me, guys, and gals for that matter, but I really want to talk to the guys for a moment. Every single one of us, we need to express our masculinity in the faith by studying the Word and praying the Word. It is something that is important to God's people. And let today be a day of encouragement for you in that. The thing about worship is it is not a respecter of man or woman, of young or old. It's not a respecter of ethnicity. Hear me this morning. Your accountability before God is not based on any of those factors. Your accountability before God and your ability to worship Him as He calls you to Himself, it's not stymied in any way by whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, this ethnicity, that ethnicity, and so on and so forth. God is redeeming for himself a people from every single tribe and tongue, every nation. And we as God's people should not think of ourselves as limited because of the way that God has ordered 
his worship services and his leadership in his church, the way that God has ordered history. We are the people that are uninhibited in our worship because God has set it up to where there is no necessary, no necessary inhibiting of your worship. The Bible talks about it in Galatians like this. It says that when we are baptized, that we are, made, we are one in Christ, that baptism is representative of our oneness in Christ, and that baptism is not knowing slave or free, male or female, Jew or, or Gentile, but we are one. This covenant sign of baptism is about uniting us in worship as one before God. Your worship is uninhibited. Your worship needs to include songs and prayers together that request of God, revive, make. Also songs and prayers that remember, that recount, remember what God has done because that's what elevates us to trusting that He's going to do in the future. I guess I need to say it this way before we move past uh, point two. It, it, history is His story. So there is a part of us that has to develop an appetite for the study of history because it is His story. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go get a Ph.D. in history or that it has to be your favorite subject in school or anything like that. But, but just like there's some kind of basics to an education, like, like we, we know that we need to learn how to, say, read and write. To a Christian education, we know that we need to know history because it's His story. Salvation came to us through history. A man came. Jesus entered into human history. He will return in human history. So ours is not for the novel. We learn to be excited and expectant and joyful by remembering how faithful God's been to His people. Even in times when, when you're zoomed in on it, it looks like carnage. Like 609 B.C., Habakkuk and Israel. It, it looks like, how do you square your wrath with, with your mercy in this? We learn to pray to Him for things when we can't evidently square it with what's right in front of us. That's, that's the faith. The righteous shall live by faith. One day... His, the glory of the knowledge of God will be all over the earth. If you must square every incident with God, then I would say to you, you're more like Habakkuk 1 with complaint than Habakkuk 3 with worship. This is about worshiping a God that's got it. It's about worshiping a God that we don't fully understand. And we can certainly complain to Him. He can, he can shoulder it. But in the end, when we come together... We need to say, in wrath, remember mercy. I request of you, I remember you, and finally, I rejoice in you. Worship rejoices. Our songs and our prayers, they are about rejoicing. Look at verse 16 through, verses 16 through 19, please. Verses 16 through 19. We've seen already that we, we request revival. It's good. Be assertive. Prayers of petition. We order our worship in such a way that we also remember. You know, I'm thinking about that prayer earlier. Remembering. Uh, God's people uh, in Nehemiah where he's praying on behalf of the people. So Habakkuk is, is in that same vein. And I'm thinking about how history is all God's and we need to lean into this, this learning experience, this growth experience, this worship experience as we sing and pray the word. And finally, we do it with rejoicing. I'll explain that in a moment. Listen to these, listen to these verses. It says, I hear in my body trembles my lip, quiver at the sound. He hears God's action in history. God's action going forward. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
he's describing this is I I I see you're going to you're going to allow our people to be punished by Babylon. They're going to be chastened. I this is going to be like rot. This is so bad. I almost can't take it. I'm going to have an emotional breakdown because I have the foresight to see what's coming. Some of you are like that. You have a gift of discernment. And I, I need to call you out of the doldrums of discernment and say that Habakkuk found through the corporate worship, the songs and the prayers, that he would then lead the people in and be a part of being led in. He found the faith to praise God despite his circumstances, despite his discernment of the ugly around him, and knowing that 25 years later these people are going to get shook, starved, suppressed, that injustice would abound. And as a discerning man, he said, yet. Look at verse 16b, yet. You've heard of the 316s of the Bible? Look at Habakkuk 316. Yet I will quietly wait. I'm going to wait for the day of trouble. If I live to see it, I'm going to see the day when Babylon conquers Israel. It's going to come upon us by those people that invade us. And then verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. This is the whole economy of Israel, by the way, the Middle East. The fields yield no fruit. Though all this happen, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, verse 18, yet. What will he do? I will rejoice. As all that happens, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Not because his circumstances have changed, because his attitude has changed. And then verse 19, God, the Lord, he is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then it is addressed to be sung to the choir master as we sing and pray the word. We sang this morning, it is well the trials, those trials shall come. It is well with my soul. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We sang the word when we sang that song. The Lord is my strength, mighty, majesty. Rejoice. Pastor Andy Minikoff says it like this. He says that joy is a settled happiness. It's not a happiness flippantly. It's a settled happiness. I'm not even sure how much I like the word happiness in relation to joy. Because I don't know that it's about the fleetingness of being happy so much as it is about the resoluteness of the depth of joy by hoping with sobriety in what's to come. I do think it involves a measure of being able to smile and worship, though. We need to come to these services with reverence and awe because we're meeting with God. But there's a joy, a steadfast, resolute joy in our manner that is almost indescribable because we see rot around us. Minikoff said this, he said, Stop looking for joy and look to Jesus. What do we do in those seasons when we don't feel joyful? What's to be done when we know in our head that God is good and kind and sovereign, but our joy in God has gone AWOL? The answer might surprise you. He exhorts, stop looking for joy. Even when Paul commands us to rejoice in Philippians 4, he fundamentally calls us to a place that our confidence is in who God is and what He has done. Paul's command to rejoice comes at the very end of his letter in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. I want to read you chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. And just before I do, I want to tell you, this comes at the end of his letter to the church at Philippi. It comes after Paul has already acknowledged that 
the good work of salvation began and is promised to be completed by God himself, chapter 1, verse 6. It's already said in Philippians that it comes after Paul's recounted how earthly trials are not to be, are not to be compared as worth anything compared to our heavenly hope. It comes after recounting the high cost Christ paid to save an unholy people. It comes after Paul proclaimed his identity is not in safety, reputation, or ministry, but in Christ alone. It comes after he declared no matter what happens in this life, our citizenship is in heaven. It comes after and after and after. And now listen to Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Paul, in all these chapters leading up to Philippians 4, he was deliberately placing his eye, his, the eyes of his readers on a trustworthy Savior and not their circumstances. And only after doing this does he point to the reality of God as worthy of all our faith and of rejoicing in. It's as if he's saying, you must rejoice, and if you want to know how, revisit what I've said. Put your trust in Christ. And so we see here the key to finding joy is to stop looking for it. Keep your eyes on Christ instead, then watch and wait, and joy will come. Listen to how he ends the book. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let your mind gravitate to these excellent things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen. Remember these things, these things you've read about in the Bible, these things that you've heard. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the formula for rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It's not by looking for joy. It's looking to Jesus. We must look to Jesus if we are to have joy. Joy in an election season. Joy in a COVID season. Joy in a season that needs justice, God will bring final justice. God is creating for himself a people, as I've already said, and this glimpse of glory occurs in our worship service right now. This is where the redeemed of the Lord say so. We have a glimpse of glory right here. It's one of the many reasons we must gather with consistency. The gospel is for you. It's tempting to think that, that happy will make you rejoice, but it doesn't. We, we need depth. We need to compare what we sing with what Habakkuk sang. Pastor Douglas O'Donnell said that, gave this illustration. He said, most churches today are registered with CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing International. In this website, they have a database called Song Select, a program that consists of, well, better than 2,000 songs, both contemporary and traditional, in setting. A few years ago, it listed its top 10 themes. The most popular theme was acceptance. Only five, of its, of its, only five themes of all their themes carried what we might think of as a negative category, such as, say, hell. It's only mentioned in nine of the songs. Whereas 2,000 songs mention positive themes. The theme of judgment is covered in a mere 187 of the chronicled songs. What I want to say to you today is that there's a need for you to compare what you sing with what Habakkuk sang. He does not extradite wrath from his prayer for mercy. It's right there together. 
The ESV uses wrath 212 times. Love 550 times. I guess by the metrics we should mention wrath at least half or nearly half as often as we do love. Laugh appears only 17 times and happy 11 times. Wrath 212, love 550. Why have we stopped singing about God's righteous triumphs, His judgment of the wicked? It's not because the Bible provides a different model. Think of the song of Moses and Deborah. They all speak of judgment. The New Testament doesn't know anything of this. Mercy does not nullify what the Bible teaches about faith as waiting on God's wrath. There's joy in judgment. One seminal book is titled, Salvation Comes Through Judgment. And we're supposed to rejoice in these things, 2 Thessalonians says. God considers it just to repay affliction when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing afflicting vengeance on those is revealed he'll afflict a vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to find joy in his justice on the last day. Friends, to have this perspective about God and who he is and not have our God perspective shaped by everything that's around us, we have to sing faithful songs, be involved in praying faithful prayers. Prayers that request, songs that sing, request, that remember, that recite this history, this great work of God, and that rejoice as we lean into God and not into our circumstances only, as we take this to Him. Joy in the midst of our circumstances is so very, very important. This prayer poem was to be sung by community. As we move each week after six long days of being slowly deteriorated into man-centeredness, back to God-centeredness. It's like, back to God-centeredness. That's what this is. We didn't come in here today just to make jokes, just to be glib. We came in here today to meet with the living God and to remind our centeredness, that it needs our souls, that they need to be centered on God rather than on man, on faith rather than by sight. That's what this is about. We need this worship that requests and remembers and rejoices. Consider, in conclusion, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The salvation that we rejoice in. In spite of awful circumstances. Circumstances that discerning people and feeling people can hardly square Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. He endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We could hold that verse right there for just a moment. This strikes the note for the harmony of our worship, friends. This strikes the note. Look to Jesus not to find happiness. Don't try to find just happiness. Look to Jesus and then know joy because of Him. He founded and will finish your faith. And he found joy when he endured the cross, even though he despised the shame of the cross, all at the same time. 
and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, you will be resurrected too. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, even though he despised the shame. That's in wrath, remember mercy. That's our prayer. That's how we, how we live with joy in the midst of our circumstance. That's how we don't become joy suckers. That's how we sing joy unspeakable and full of glory. Or like we're about to sing after I offer this pastoral prayer, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Because we can move through the gears of man-centeredness and shift back to God-centeredness every week because we need this checkpoint for corporate prayers and songs in Jesus. So let's make sure that they're rightly orchestrated and organized around the Word of God, and let's labor to do so. Would you stand with me as we pray? And after I say amen, we're going to sing a song of rejoice. Let's bow our heads and, and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to pray today for Cornerstone Church. I ask you to help them to draw closer to you, to remain united, to be strengthened, bless their discipling groups. I pray for their pastor, John DeVito, today. I want to pray you'd bless our sermons, that as we hear them preached, that we would have them blessed. Every sermon on the sermon card that's listed and laid out front in the foyer, I hope every single one of them will be blessed by you. May we pray together and read them in advance that we might be recentered on you every Sunday. I hope that you'll be with our missionaries in the Middle East, Todd and Brittany. I hope that you will help them to be encouraged today, even as they're far away physically from many friends and family. I want to pray for grandparents today on this day and ask for continuity and faith among generations. I want to pray for unity at Mount Vernon Baptist Church among the members. I want to pray for future leaders that aspire to train now. I want to pray that you would give them energy and focus on their studies now, that they might be readied for the day in which their leadership is most needed. I pray you would cultivate a culture of discipleship in our church, that these little ones would receive your gospel and grow up in it. I pray for college students that are away. I pray you'd help them to stay strong in the faith and be frequent in these corporate worship services wherever they are. I pray for those that are afflicted and sick, that are in the nursing homes, that are away from us. I pray they would be not lonely but encouraged. I learned that Serena, our dear friend, is in the hospital today. I want to pray for her. I want to ask that you would help with the loved ones of J.R. Owen, who recently perished and has now met you. We pray that the gospel will be proclaimed. We pray that his family would know you. And we pray these things expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen.